This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the last chapter of the series, Familiar Strangers. And this is part two of a two-part episode. So if you haven't listened to episode number 179 yet, you should go back and start there. This week, we'll pick up where we left off. The Romanov family dynasty ended in 1917 when Bolshevik forces toppled the monarchy. Tsar Nicholas, Empress Alexandra, and their five children were held prisoner for 16 months. And then it was reported they had been executed in the basement of the Ipatiev house in Ekaterinburg. However, their bodies were never found. The Bolshevik party, led by Vladimir Lenin, did not admit to executing the entire family, but only took responsibility for the assassination of Nicholas II. Because of this, some believed that the rest of the imperial family was alive, possibly escaped and hiding somewhere. This provided an opening for a number of people to come forward over the following months and years, claiming to be one of the missing Romanovs. Most of these claimants were quickly denounced as impostors, but one claimant would emerge in 1920 who was not so easily dismissed. A young woman emerged in Germany who had enough similarities with the Grand Duchess Anastasia Romanov that some believed she was the missing daughter of Tsar Nicholas II. Others would say she was a fraud. The debate would continue with many people weighing in, including doctors, detectives, government officials, former servants, and acquaintances of the imperial family, and even other Romanov family members, to investigate the young woman's claim. Even so, this mystery would not be easily solved. Join me now for the second half of the story of Anastasia Romanov. So for part two, I'm going to do something a little different. It's a surprise I think you'll like. First, I'll tell you why I've decided to cover it this way, and then I'll let you in on the surprise. For one thing, California is on fire. Where I live, I'm not in any danger from it, except the thick smoke that's all around us. But these fires are everywhere. Um, Nobody's escaping the terrible air quality. Um, Also, we've been in the middle of a heat wave this month. This is the first day it's actually been cool which I really appreciate since I'm recording in a small airless room. But on top of all of this, of course, is the current state of the pandemic, a very long year of being shut in, plus no time off this summer for the usual travel I do and events I attend like CrimeCon. So I was kind of running on fumes trying to get weekly episodes out as the summer ground to an end. So I thought of a solution and I brought in some help to get the second part out to you. Many of you have told me how much you've liked the episodes I've done with my sister Yolanda in the past, and it's been a long time since we've collaborated on one. So it is my great pleasure to welcome her back to the show. Welcome back, Yolanda. Hello. So she's going to give me a little bit of a hand here because this is quite a story. As you guys know, we've gone through part one. Now we're going to be talking about the person who comes forward to claim that she is Anastasia Romanoff. So there's a lot of details in the story, but 
uh, it's a little bit more casual. I have somebody here to also comment and just kind of go through this crazy story with us. So Yolanda, you listened to part one. I think you know a little bit about this story. I listened to part one, but before that, I'd either read the story or heard it on another podcast, I maybe on television. I can't remember, but I know that I've I've heard the details of what's currently known. This story just continues on because, like I said at the end of the last episode, there were imposters right away, people claiming to be one or other of the Romanovs. But Anastasia is very unique. For some reason, she became a popular person to impersonate several people who came forward saying they were her. But there was one person who came forward who there was quite a lot of debate and investigations and supporters for her and detractors against her. And this went on for quite a while. So that's the story that I'm going to be telling you um, now. Where this story starts, which is three years after the disappearance of the imperial family, and now we're in 1920. February 17th, 1920, in Berlin, Germany, there was an officer who was patrolling near the city center of Berlin, and it was near a bridge over the Landwehr Canal. Now, I told you guys this <laughs> last episode, I do not speak Russian. It's a really hard language. Now we're going to have German. I also do not speak German. <laughs> <laughs> So you're going to have to bear with me. Those of you who are German speakers, you'll know that I am not pronouncing these names and, and uh, place names correctly, probably in the least. So so the bridge over the Landwehr Canal, this officer is on patrol and he hears a splash. He looks over the bridge and he sees a woman struggling in the water. So he runs down to the bank. Luckily, she uh, was still alive. He pulls her out. This is a petite, dark-haired woman. At first glance, she looked like she was in her 20s, very petite, five foot, two inches tall, about 110 pounds. Once he pulls her out of the canal, she is fully dressed. So obviously, at first glance, this is going to be some kind of uh, suicide attempt, apparently. So he takes her to the hospital. She uh, gets examined. It doesn't appear she's injured. The first problem that we have, and this is going to continue to be an issue, is that she would not answer any, any questions at all. She would not identify herself. There was nothing on her. There was no, she had no ID. She had no money, uh, nothing. Uh, So the few words that they can get out of her, she does speak German and she speaks good German. They're trying to figure out who she is. She will not answer any questions. And they do, however, notice several injuries to her body as they're examining her. There are several older scars pretty much all over her body on various parts of her body. There's also evidence that possibly at the sometime in the past had received a traumatic blow to her face and head because both her upper and lower jaw had previously been fractured. So that's got to be a pretty serious injury. She was missing eight teeth and she had seven teeth loose. And they believe that was from whatever trauma she had suffered to her face and head. She also had a right scar on the top of her foot and on her sole. So it was like the wound had entered the top of the foot and pierced through the back of the sole. So it was like something went right through it. So they assess her mental state because she will not speak. Uh, Obviously, she could speak because they did get a few words out of her. So it wasn't like she couldn't speak. But she would speak very little. She refused to answer most questions. 
And this is something that I kept picturing because they said, whenever they tried to really get her to speak or spoke to her directly, she would either number one, turn her head to the wall. Like she's not like, like she can't la 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 la. I can't hear you or that kind of thing, which is really annoying. You think about it. <laughs> but the other thing she would do is she would cover her head with a blanket or a sheet or pull a sheet up. Like she was in a, like a hospital bed. She'd pull a sheet up over her face all the time. Like either not to look at people or sometimes she'd speak behind the sheet. She obviously had some major trauma at some point. So that kind of makes sense. I mean. So there was something, obviously something, you know, mentally going on here. Like I said, she wouldn't identify herself. So the hospital recorded her as Fraulein Ubekant or Miss Unknown, which I think, I think Fraulein Ubekant sounds better. Ubekant, (laughs) Ubenkant, I don't know, something like that. But anyway, she was Miss Unknown. So it was basically like a Jane Doe would be here in the U.S., I assume. They don't know your name. They give you Jane Doe or John Doe. Yeah. So what do they do with her? She wasn't injured. So they said, okay, something mental is going on here. She was sent to the State Institute for Welfare and Care in a a place that was called Daldorf. Uh, It's a mental facility, obviously. I'm sure that was a great place to be (laughs) in the 20s. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, Berlin was a pretty cosmopolitan city. I mean, it was really, you know, this is this is before World War II. So it was pretty, you know, up and coming there. It was like a real center of industry and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. But I mean, sanitariums in that time were just experimental areas. (laughs) It's not like she was coming in and, you know, like a private hospital. This was a state hospital. So you're right. It probably was, you know, not the best. So they diagnosed her with a depressive mental illness, which is their diagnosis at the time, because she tended to fluctuate from being very rude and kind of like, get out of my face, to being almost catatonic. She would actually be there in Daldor for 19 months. While she was there, she finally did admit that she had jumped into the canal to kill herself, but she would not say why. So mostly she just wanted to be left alone. Now, 19 months. It's a long time. But she seemed perfectly happy to stay there. <laughs> so she said she read a lot. She asked for newspapers. Apparently they had like a, like a little lending library that they could go get magazines and books and papers and stuff. And she read a lot. They did notice that she asked for books in both English and French. She had been speaking German, but she was asking for books in English and French, which hmm. now they're like, okay, maybe she's not German. We don't know, right? Yeah. They decided, okay, we still don't know who she is. We're going to circulate her photo around to other police departments, hospitals, etc., trying to ID her. Uh, this goes on. June, she's questioned again by the police. They come back. They're like, look, who are you? <laughs> they did a lot of work for it being that time. Yeah, because they, you know, they didn't really know what to do with her. But she was then fingerprinted in June. Still didn't get any hits, I guess. So now let's fast forward. Like I said, this started in February of 1920. This is October of 1921 now. She has become friendly with some of the nurses. That October, she gets a copy of this issue of a German, it's like a weekly magazine called the Berliner Illustrierte Zeitung. I don't know. Let's call it the Berliner. (laughs) Let's call it the Berliner. Okay. Well, on the cover of this magazine was a photo of the missing and supposed executed grand duchesses, Anastasia, of course, Tatiana and Marie. So the three, there was a picture of the three of them on the cover. And the title on the magazine was, quote, is one of the czar's daughters alive? Because this had been something that 
It was one of those things that became kind of like a, a mystery, a legend. Uh, it's almost like I would think of it like the true crime of that day where yeah. people are like following this story, like what like happened. Like the John Bonet of the... That yeah, but a missing person. Yeah, but a missing person. But yeah. a missing person, yeah. Or maybe it's more like the McCann, right? Yeah, Madeline McCann, something like that, you know. But of course, this was the imperial family, so it's even more. So, of course. It, I mean, it would be like if one of the royal went missing all of a sudden and it's like well what happened (laughs) yeah yeah exactly exactly because i mean the royals are already like a big draw to people people always want to know yeah everything about them and then something like this is just you know takes it to another level one of the the quotes from the article is quote to this day it has not been possible to definitively establish if during the massacre one of the grand duchesses anastasia was not merely severely wounded and if she remained alive now why anastasia i don't know that, that, to me, is still a mystery. Was she the one with the personality that was... Which one was the one that had, like, the really good personality that they that she was, like, fun? Yeah, because she was the youngest daughter. Okay. And she was, you know, very... Almost kind of childlike, even into her late teens. She liked to, you know, play pranks and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes people said, you know, she was kind of a pain in the ass, but she was also <laughs> kind of entertaining, you know, so... Maybe the whole thing was, one, it's a better story if you think that the youngest one of the clan lives. And two, it would make more sense that they would have allowed the youngest one to be let go or get away or whatever. Right. Rather than one of the older ones. Right. So she has this magazine. She gets like kind of obsessed with this magazine. She's constantly looking at the pictures in it. She's reading it over and over. She keeps it with her. It's one of these things that you, you know, you look at it, then you put it back in the library, but she keeps it. It's one of the things that they've seen her be very interested in. So as she's starting to get friendly with these nurses, now it's, it's hard to know because there's so many stories and a lot of them contradict one another, but it seems like the nurses and the pe- people that were in the, in the hospital almost started to kind of ask questions about like, hmm, that would be weird if she was the, because we don't know who she is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or you think you're at work, you're going to chit chat, you're going to yeah. be with your, you know, your coworkers, your girlfriends or whatever and be like, oh, wouldn't that be weird if she was Anastasia? Yeah. <laughs> She's about the right age. I don't know which was first, the chicken or the egg, because either she started to say things and they started asking her more or they started to say things and she started to like play along with these questions and start to answer some things or whatever. So finally, she does say to them, yeah, I'm Anastasia, right? To like three or four nurses that were there that she talked to sometimes. Of course, she's a mental patient. Yeah. So they're not taking it seriously. I think they're just playing along because it's fun. It's something fun to talk about. One night she calls one of the nurses over and shows her the pictures in the magazine. And she asks her, don't you see any resemblance between, she points to her and to Anastasia. And then the nurse finally straight out asks, well, are you the Grand Duchess? But she doesn't answer. But, you know, they kind of listen to her and they're like, oh, okay. (laughs) Because I don't know if they completely believed her. Well, I mean, you got to think, too, that she was sitting there in this hospital for how long? For, yeah, like over a year. Over yeah. a year. So she's she's there for over a year. The one, ooh, really interesting thing that she's been able to read is, you know, this mystery. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, 
eh, I just play along. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, and, you know, she's not quite all there. So, of course, it's probably easy for her to make up stories or, you know, whatever. And Yeah, so plenty of time. Yeah, I mean, it's an imagination. It's like, well, what else are you going to do? <laughs> right. So after she tells him the story about escaping, then she swears the nurses to secrecy. And nothing, nothing more to said after that. They, of course, they probably just thought, okay, well, she's delusional. And that was yeah. fun, but that's over. Okay, so that probably would have been the end of it, really. Except for in December of that year, another woman was admitted to Daldorf. Her name was Marie Clara Puthert. She was a 50-year-old woman. She was hospitalized for attack of the nerves, which was a thing that they used to put on women's diagnosis back in the day. She was a German woman, and she had actually lived in Russia. So, you know, she was close to the story. She understood some Russian, the whole thing. She had lived in a a home of a wealthy aristocrat as a dressmaker. So she befriends the Miss Unknown, still doesn't have a name. After they start getting, you know, actually she starts talking to her. She starts showing her the magazine. She seemed obsessed over this magazine and over this story, right? Well, the other woman is also a mental patient. So, (laughs) So she really buys into the story. And she's like, oh my God. God, this is amazing, right? So she leaves. She gets discharged a month later. Because her nerves are better. (laughs) Yes. Yes, because she got a great story. Now, but she's got to go. She's got to go tell people about this story, right? So so she does. So she leaves and she starts telling people the Grand Duchess is alive. She was rescued. She's in a hospital in Berlin. She's, you know, and people, of course, are thinking, you just got out of a mental hospital. Okay. (laughs) We're going to believe you now. But here's the thing. She does not identify her as Anastasia. She identifies her as her older sister, Tatiana. Where she got that idea, I don't know. But again, the Miss Unknown never really was very clear about anything. She said she was one of the Romanov family. She escaped. She never said which one. Which one. She never really, they would ask, start to try to ask her more questions and she would just clam up again. Right. So, which is a good way to play it. If you're trying to get people intrigued in your story, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's like a soap opera and something dramatic happens and then it ends. Who knew next week, you know? So about a month after she's released, she happens to run into another, because you're going to remember, okay, when the, the Russian revolution happened, all the aristocrats, all the people who were the monarchists all had to flee Russia. So there's a lot of emigres in, in Germany and other places, okay. but there was a lot in Berlin. There was a big community of them in Berlin who, you know, formerly had been in Russia. So she meets one of these people who's there. And That'll they, be a great place to be in a few years after that. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it gets bad. It does. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's coming. Um, but anyway, so they get in a conversation and he tells her that he was formal and it was, it's true. He said that he was formerly employed by the Dowager Empress uh, Marie, who was Anastasia's grandmother. Okay. So this is Nicholas II's mom and okay. he used to work for her. His name was Nicholas von Schwab. Now he's going to play a big part in the story. She tells him about the woman in Daldorf. He says, I know this family. I can go and you know, check this out. Right. And like in March of 1922. So 
the woman, Clara, the one who had been in the hospital, and von Schwab and another friend go to Geldorf. Of course, they get there. First thing she does, puts the sheet over her face (laughs) and refuses to speak. Of course. So he starts speaking to her in Russian. She says in German, I don't speak Russian. Okay, right there, I'd be like, okay, case closed. She doesn't speak Russian. She cannot be Anastasia, right? But they continue. And he shows her a picture of his former employer, the Dowager, which was her grandmother. She says she doesn't know her. She's giving like one word answers. She won't really engage. They're thinking, well, she's in a mental hospital. She may not be all there, right? When he leaves, Von Schwab leaves, he decides that he's going to take this story to an organization called the Supreme Monarchist Council, which is, and they have a chapter, I guess, or whatever, in Berlin. These are all people that were formerly part of the parliament, the Duma, that was part of Nicholas's parliament. They had then come to other countries like Germany and formed organizations to help Russian emigres. So that's what they're for. So he takes it to them and he tells them about what he's found out. They take him seriously. They decide to investigate. Well, I think they're probably desperate for news of what had happened to them. So I could see where they would do that, but she wasn't exactly like, like you said, she wasn't confirming this Mm -hmm. is who I am. This is, I mean, after she said she didn't speak Russian, hello. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, and this is the pattern that we'll see because this continues and this is why it could get a little frustrating, but it also gets confusing because it's like, is she or isn't she? So they, they basically enlist this woman named Zenaid Tolstoy. She was an aristocrat and also a friend of the imperial family. They basically send her to Daldorf now to, to see this woman. Again, she tries to conceal herself. You know, it's the whole thing all over again where she doesn't want to talk. She doesn't want to see anybody. But this, this woman, Tolstoy, says she sees some resemblance to Nicholas II. So that's the first thing. She's like, well, she kind of looks like Nicholas II. Then this woman has brought a bunch of photos and postcards and letters that had to do with the imperial family, pictures of the family and all of that. As she starts showing her these things, she becomes very agitated. She starts crying. So when this woman leaves she will say that it is her determination that she is one of the Romanovs, but she's Tatiana. But the other woman, Clara, she goes, no, she's Anastasia. And then she goes, oh, yeah, you're right, you're right. Yeah, she just like, looks just like Anastasia. That's right, she's Anastasia. This yeah. kind of shows me that they want to believe in some respects, right? But then months later, this woman now says she could change her mind. She said, nope, she's not one of the czar's daughters. So right around this time, because, you know, this investigation has started, the Russian community that are there in Germany start hearing about this claim. Now it becomes a thing in the news. But now the council's like, she thinks it is, but she's not sure. So we got to send somebody else. So now they send word to Princess Irene of Prussia. Now you remember the imperial family, they had royal family lines everywhere, you know, (laughs) Denmark to Greece, to to Russia, to Germany, to, you know, everywhere. So this, this is Princess Irene of Prussia. She's Empress Alexandra's sister. So this would be Anastasia's aunt. Well, princess, she's like, I don't want to, don't put me in the middle of this mess. (laughs) So she sends 
another person who she knows knows the family, Baroness Sophie Buxhoven. Buxhoven. I like that name, Buxhoven. She was Alexandra's Empress Alexandra's former lady in waiting, so she's going to know her. While she had last seen the family when they were being sent from Tobolsk to Ekaterinburg, which is where they were executed, so she saw them. One of the last people that saw them that survived. When the Baroness comes, she speaks to her in English because she also spoke English, and none of her language skills were that great. But she spoke English to her mom, and. So she knew English, she could understand it, she could speak it. But uh, the Baroness reports that this woman didn't understand a word that I said. So (laughs) the end, this isn't her. And she also keeps holding a sheet up over her face. Now, one of the reasons she kept holding the sheet up over her face is because of her teeth. They had actually pulled a bunch of teeth once she got to the hospital because they were all basically falling falling out. out. Yeah. So she she was hiding her face, but also she was hiding her face, not just her teeth. So, <laughs> but she said she would have recognized me. There's no recognition at all. So Clara's back there and she's like, God dang it. She's blowing it. Right. <laughs> and Clara whispers to, you know, isn't that mama? And she shows her the picture. She's showing her pictures of Alexandra and, and, you know, Czar Nicholas and all this stuff. She goes, isn't that mama? And this Baroness gets pissed. She's like, yeah, now what? I'm done with this. So she rips the sheet down from her face. <laughs> I was wondering why someone hadn't done that sooner. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So she does. And she says, uh, there's some resemblance in her eyes and her forehead. But when she saw the whole face, no. She goes, it wasn't. She didn't have the same mouth. She didn't have the same nose. It just couldn't be. She said she did not le- in the least physically resemble Anastasia. But this was not reported in the newspaper. So the community still thought that maybe Anastasia was in this hospital. People started coming and bringing her gifts and bringing her things and, you know, little mementos from the imperial family, like maybe like commemorative little books and, and postcards and pictures and whatever. And two of the regular visitors that came uh, were a baron named Arthur von Kleist and his wife Marie, and they became friends. As much as you can become friends with somebody who barely talks, but they become friends. (laughs) So they requested that this Miss Unknown, who they still don't have a name for, they asked for her to be released into their care. Now, they're barons. They live in in Berlin. They have a lot of money and whatever. So in May of 1922, she moves in with the Von Cleese. And, you know, they're basically a big-ass house, and she has everything she could want. They treat her really nicely. They believe she's Anastasia. This is why, you know, they believe. I think that at first they weren't quite sure, but they thought, you know, if there's a chance that she is, we want to be on the good side of that, right? What do they call her? They're, they asked her, well, we don't know what to call you. Like, do we call you Grand Duchess? You know, and she goes, no, I don't want to be called that. Just call me Fraulein Annie. So she's Fraulein Annie now. They gave her a room. They bought her all kinds of clothes. They took her out on the town. Lots of people started coming again to visit, including their aristocratic friends, bringing her all kinds of stuff, including more magazines, books, newspapers about the Romanovs. Just her jam. So she's just all into it. Totally. She was spending (laughs) hours, hours, just like she had the stuff all over her room. She was constantly reading about it. She had pictures up. You know, it was just, yeah, she was way into it. So she was fangirling all over the... (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Fangirling, but she's one of the, yeah, supposedly... Supposedly, One of the family, so, you know. And then you're just like, you know, hoarding all of this stuff about whoever your celebrity crush is, and then you're like... (laughs) 
Yeah, now you're part of it. So it's even it's even bigger than that. You're like, okay, this works. And they're feeding me and buying me things. Oh, yeah. It's a nice gig, man. Yeah, just don't look at my teeth. And <laughs> she just carry a, did she carry a, a sheet around with her? Yeah, well, even when she was living with them, she didn't spend a lot of time around them. She was like holed up in her room. She would not take meals with them. She would, you know, sit down in the dining room with their family and have dinner. And she wouldn't. She would eat in her room. She just kind of kept to herself. Her moods very much swung from one to another. Of course, you can't diagnose, but I think if we did take a a stab at it, I would say something like bipolar, um, because the way that they describe her is she would be not talking to anybody in bed all day, not wanting anybody around, to talking nonstop about the Romanovs. And then she would get very angry and agitated she had a paranoid thing going on as well, where she would constantly be like, why are you spying on me? Who's coming? What, what do they want? But she wouldn't just be fearful. She'd get angry. And she would start like causing a scene and screaming at people and being very rude. It would be very volatile, her mood, and it would swing all over the place. Well, um, she's who I'd want in my house as a guest. Yeah. And, and this is what's going to happen is there's people that are going to be her supporters, but pretty much everybody's going to get sick of her at some point and say, I can't deal with this. And so this is what happens because this is how she is. So this is when she tells about her escape in detail about how she escaped the execution. She tells this to the Von Cleese while she's there and they write it down because they're keeping track of everything, right? So they write it down. So this becomes the written account of what happened to her that they're going to share with when there's an investigation, when people, you know, are looking into this. She said that her time at the, what they call the House of Special Purpose. I've got to say something about the House of Special Purpose. Okay. The whole time that you were repeating that in the first episode, all I kept thinking was the movie. And do you know what I'm talking about? No. Uh Uh-uh. Steve Martin, jerk. You don't remember I him? Remember, I remember the movie. A special was... purpose. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so every time you said that was a special purpose, I wanted to like spit out my water. <laughs> What's my special purpose? <laughs> Sorry, showing my age. <laughs> so, so she said that her time there had been hell. Like I said, the soldiers were like wild animals towards us. The executions came very subtly, she said. They were all taken into this basement room. When the shooting started, she had shielded herself behind her sister Tatiana, who was killed first. She changed this detail as she told the story more than once. Once, uh, another time she'd say that, sometimes she would say that she was behind Olga, not Tatiana, but it was kind of, you know, a little bit of a difference in the story. But she says she then received some blows and lost consciousness. But the accounts of her, Injuries, she always varied those. Sometimes she said she received some shots, which of course they found no evidence of that she'd been, you know, shot by bullets and on her body. She also said she'd received injuries to her hand and behind the ear. One time she even said she was shot in the neck. She has all of the details about everything leading up to the actual assassination because she had all this information they kept giving her. Yes. When she awoke, she was being cared for by one of one of the soldiers that was actually there that was guarding the house. His name was Alexander Tchaikovsky. She said he was about 26 years old. He was handsome. He had black hair. And his he had told her that his family had once been Polish nobility. 
apparently, I guess the story goes is that they thought she was dead, but she wasn't dead. She was wounded, but he realized she was still alive. So he had taken her, put her in a cart, took her to the home of uh, his family, which was near there. At the home was his mother, Maria, sister Veronica, and brother Serge. Now, she has all of these names. It's funny how she's got so many details about this, right? So she said that the family was afraid of being captured because they had the, the, the Grand Duchess. So they decided to leave with her by cart to Romania. Now, it's really far, first of all. Okay. And meanwhile, she's still very injured. You know, she's bleeding. She's half unconscious. She's, you know... Uh, in pain. She's got all these wounds. She said, now remember the story that they had jewels sewn in their clothes. Remember? Oh, that's right. So she said that the way that they paid their way was that she gave them some of the jewels hidden in her clothing to get fresh horses, to get a new cart whenever they needed it. She said weeks and months went by as they traveled. She didn't remember much of the journey as she was very sick and injured. That's over... 3,000 kilometers to, <laughs> from, you know, where they were. So that's, yeah, months. It's not going to be days. It's going to be, yeah. Okay. So that already is like, nobody saw any, you know, in a cart with a bleeding girl with, you know, <laughs> I don't know. She didn't remember the details of that because she was injured. This is also going to be a pattern. Things that she can't remember are going to be attributed to trauma to injury, or to illness. So at some point in this journey, she tells the Von Cleese that she discovered she was pregnant. Where'd that come from? Yes. <laughs> now, she told one of the, the Baron and Baroness's young... She forgot. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is what she said. She realized that she had been raped. Now, she didn't tell them this. She told this to their younger daughter named Gerda, who also wrote it down and recorded it, uh, that she had been raped by the soldier that had saved her, but she didn't hold any animosity towards him because he had saved her. And also because, you know, he's a Bolshevik. So, you know, he's kind of like an animal. So they're not like us. This is what she actually said. He's got a different, you know, sensibility, moral, whatever than we So it's okay. Yeah, that's kind of how she put it. Oh my gosh. Then she said she gave birth to a boy in Bucharest on December 5th, 1918. Now, that's my birthday, but not my birthday year. (laughs) (laughs) But I hope not. (laughs) So, yeah. And so, but she, again, she has a date. She's got details. But if she had given birth on December 5th, 1918, she would have had to have already been pregnant before the executions, even if the baby was very premature. There's just not, the math is wrong. Which, again, they're like, well, Duh, her head, she's injured. You know, maybe she just doesn't remember numbers. She said that she named him either Alexi or, but later she said it was Alexander after like his father. So here's the thing. They travel, they do this whole trip. They go, go to Romania. Her father's first cousin was the queen of Romania at the time. She could have gone to the queen, right? She could have gone anywhere and said, I need to get to the queen. Yes. And I hear some jewels to take me. (laughs) This is to prove who I am. Right. That's all she had to do. Yeah. But then when they asked her about that, she said, well, first she was too ill. Second, she said she was too ashamed because she was pregnant. And she couldn't show up to, you know, her royal family member 
being pregnant. She sounds like she just made up a whole big old story. <laughs> okay, so she gave she gave the baby to the father. She ended up giving the baby to the to the father's family. She said she never wanted a child, of course, and she didn't care what happened to it. She said, even though it was royal, right. had royal blood, right. But then she said she had married Alexander Tchaikovsky in January. So the month after the baby was born, she married him. And she was married under the name Anna Romanska Romanska, or Anastasia Romanova. She said she had actually converted to Catholicism. They were married in a Catholic church. Their son was baptized. So she claimed that the Bolshevik agents were still after them, were after her, were after him, of course, because he had helped her escape. So, so much so that he, he was found and attacked and killed in Bucharest in 1919 or 1920. So then she left the baby after he died. She left the baby with his family, made her way to Germany through Romania. Meanwhile, she dealt all this with no identification and no passport. So that seems at the time, even at the time they said that would have been almost impossible. By the way, wasn't right around that time, I don't know, another pandemic was happening. Yeah, I think maybe that's when she was in. The- maybe that's why she was wearing a mask, <laughs> covering her face. Okay, it would have been smart. So, yeah, she should have um, wrote a book. Yeah, soon after she arrived in Berlin is when she made the suicide attempt. She said she had a plan to approach Princess Irene of Prussia once she got there, but she said if she did, and then everyone would know her shame. So, so yeah, so that's why she didn't. But. Okay, so here's the thing. We talk about contacting the relatives. Why didn't she contact the relatives? First of all, why doesn't she ask to contact her grandmother, who was the Dowager Empress? I mean, come on, that's her grandmother. She still, you know, got, has power. She still has money. She had gotten out. She was, you know, I think she was living in Copenhagen. She was in Denmark. She doesn't ask for them, you know, her to be contacted. So she, but she does ask, finally, she starts asking them to contact the certain people. And one of them is her, one of her aunts who is, was named Xenia Alexandrinova. And she said, Oh, con- call her, let her know because that's the aunt that liked her best. And she would recognize her better than her other aunts would. But she told the Baroness, she wouldn't have contacted me first. She would have been much closer to Olga, her sister because she was actually Anastasia's godmother. She's the one I talked about in, in the last episode that she would have them come to the house. It was the only oh, yeah. time they got to get out and she would have all these yeah, events yeah. for them and stuff. So she was closer to her nieces. She said she would have contacted her. So Olga, after hearing about this, said that, you know, this is, she's fake. She already said she's fake. And then she said this, she said, had Nikki, that's her, you know, Nicholas, had Nikki's daughter really been saved, her rescuers would have known what it meant to them. Every royal house in Europe would have rewarded them. So, yeah. So the detail- I also wonder if, as the story progressed and went along, if she actually started to believe some of it herself. Maybe because she obviously did have, still have some mental issues going on. So the details against her being Anastasia was that she would not speak Russian. When they asked her why not, she said it, it awakened too many painful memories for her. <laughs> She would also say that her memory was impaired by her injuries. She said she had actually forgotten most of her Russian. So either she didn't want to because it was painful or she forgot how. Some people said at times she could act like she 
maybe a little bit well-mannered and other times she just acted completely without social graces. So again, everything that didn't fit, you could make a case for, but she's not okay. You know what I mean? Like mentally, she's not okay. Emotionally, she's not okay. The Baroness would remain a supporter, but the Baron finally was like, he called bullshit. He was like, yeah. (laughs) So that was the end of that. Well, here's a weird thing too, is there was something about her that got people to want to help her and want to rescue her and continue to support her because they continue to take care of her and, and house her and feed her and everything. But she started having all of these outbursts and things and just these, these events and they, it just got to be too much. Finally, in August of 1922, she actually ran away from the Von Cleese. Four days later, she was found wandering in the Berlin Zoo. She didn't go back to Von Cleese right away. She just started bouncing around for the next few years. Everybody would take her in because a lot of people believed that it was really Anastasia. Other people weren't sure, but they thought, yeah, but we feel bad for her. So he just had a lot of people that were listening to this story and just wanted to help her, I guess. I don't know. They did do an investigation in 1926. She's not like gone to the papers or, you know, hey, I'm Anastasia. She's never done any of that. So this is one of the things that led people to believe that she could be credible because if she was just an imposter, she would just be trying to get attention, maybe get money, whatever. And she wasn't doing any of those things. So this woman was enlisted to start an investigation into the rescue story. So her Mm -hmm. name was uh, Gertrude Spindler. She went to Bucharest um, to investigate the story. So she talked to the people in the Romanian government, the state police, Romanian's minister of the interior, the former Russian ambassador to Romania. They all helped her with the investigation. She spent weeks going all around the places where she had said she had been. She checked into border crossings with anybody by any of those names she mentioned, or Tchaikovsky, the, the soldier. She looked for proof of residency in Bucharest. She looked at medical records. Uh, marriage records, baptism records, birth records of the baby, any reports of her husband's murder by the police or in the news or anything, any death record or burial record for him. The paper newspapers were contacted. They ran an article about her claim and asked for any witnesses to come forward who maybe knew any of these people by any of these names or had any information. Nothing, nothing was found or <laughs> anything to connect that. So that was, but Still, they're sending Romanovs to go. Oh, gosh. <laughs> to go visit her. Princess Irene finally goes. She's the one that sent the Baroness who said, yeah. this is fake. She's going to go see. Because the family now is kind of like, oh, what the hell's going on? You know, we either need to completely find out that she's a fake and let everybody know or confirm that it's really her. Annie um, is not told who this person is who's coming. So she's not told who she is. They have dinner. She sits across from her. She says she didn't, she didn't rec- seem to recognize me at all. Princess Irene said she kind of resembles her, but she immediately knew that it wasn't one of her nieces. Annie refuses to speak to her, never says anything. Later, she, Annie would say it's because she was insulted that Irene had been presented to her under a false name. Also, she was very ill and she didn't know what was going on. So, <laughs> but she was. Okay, Let's she, just continue saying these, the same thing over and over. <laughs> yeah, she was actually ill, though, because she was suffering from tuberculosis at that time, and she was in and out of hospitals, so there was that going on. But after she leaves, and she finds out, you know, oh, God, that was her, she starts writing to Princess Irene, and she said she just was uh, upset because they hadn't told her that she was coming, blah, blah, blah. She doesn't respond. She's like, whatever, dude, you know. <laughs> 
So that was it for her. So now she's going by the name Frau Anastasia Tchaikovsky. Because remember, she married Tchaikovsky in her yeah, story. So, so now she's got to use that name. Now she's using Anastasia. Now she's using Tchaikovsky. And one thing I was just going to say about the Dowager Empress uh, Marie, she had escaped Russia when all this was going on. Her daughter, Xenia, had escaped with her. Olga had escaped separately. She was now in, like I said, in Copenhagen, Denmark. Nicholas II's first cousin was Christian X. He was king of Denmark, so she had a place to go. But she always insisted that she didn't ever believe that any one of her family had been killed. Nicholas, Alexandra, the kid, none of them. they were all alive? I, I think it's just something she had to do in her head because she never, she always maintained that they were not killed. That they were, you know, either being held somewhere and that kind of thing. I don't think she just couldn't do it in her head to say that they were all, you know, killed. So one of the people that got involved in this whole thing was the Dowager Empress's brother. He was uh, Prince Waldemar of Denmark. He became interested in this case. I, I kind of was reading about him like, ah, he was a true crime dude. He wanted, <laughs> he wanted to try to solve the mystery, you know. So he got a private investigator to, to work on the case. So... Finally, Olga, her godmother, sent Pierre Gilliard and his wife. Now, Gilliard was the Grand Duchess's tutor, so he knew them very well. At this point, she was in another hospital, St. Mary's Hospital. She had been um, being treated for tuberculosis. She got an infection in her elbow, and she was on morphine. So when he got there, she really was too sick to speak this time. So he said he studied her face. He said, I could not find the least resemblance between... Frau Tchaikovsky, and the one who had been so dear to us. He said only the similarity was the color of her eyes. When he asked her... Well, apparently I'm a Russian princess. (laughs) I guess they also knew his wife. So when he asked her if she recognized his wife, she said it was Olga, which is her godmother, which is not even close, right? He said, well, let me come back when she's not so sick and I'll do a better assessment. But already behind the scenes, the royal family had decided, while we're investigating this, we're going to make sure that her expenses are taken care of. Because she was in a hospital, mm-hmm. I guess, where she was. And he said, this is not the best hospital. So he had her moved and they paid for her. She had to move to a private clinic um, in Berlin called the Momsen Clinic. So she was there and she did recover. So early the next year, 1926, a, Copen- a paper in Copenhagen, remember that her family is from Copenhagen. The, that's where the Dowager Empress lives now. That paper says that it has been concluded that the woman is not Anastasia, but this woman who became very close to Anastasia, she was one of her supporters. Her name's Harriet, Harriet von Rathleff Kielman. So we'll just call her Harriet. So Harriet has been all, all up in all of this now. She's there all the time. Um, she's the one that's like kind of like her press secretary. She's her big supporter. So anyway, she gives an interview to the New York Times and says that Olga came, Grand Duchess Olga came, her godmother came and, and confirmed that she was Anastasia. So New York Times prints this and it goes all over the world. Oh, of course. So now this thing's not going to die, right? So, but here's what we find out about, uh, around this time is that at least two sources were feeding her information about the inside details of Nicholas and Alexandra's court and home life. One of them was that Nicholas von Schwab guy. He was bringing visitors to her. She was finding de- learning details from them, the callers that came to the von Kleist home. Some of them were like people that were in the palace or around the palace or had worked for other people who had worked for the Romanovs. There were some little details that they were able to give her that I feel like she could like hold on to every detail about this because she was so into it, like you said. 
Mm. She was such a fangirl, like every detail she was going to remember. And I think that that really helped her because she was able to recall those when she needed them. Some people said that she was even being coached by some people. There's all of that kind of stuff. So, so in 1926, she finally leaves the Momsen Clinic. From this time forward, she is constantly being given things. People are taking care of her. They're giving her hotel rooms and places to stay and money and credit cards and clothes. And so she's constantly being taken care of. She's given a hotel, a suite at a hotel, Hotel Tivoli in, the, in Switzerland. That's paid for the Prince Waldemar because he's still trying to investigate this. There, she starts losing it again with her moods. Very volatile behavior. She's like, again, she starts becoming paranoid, angry, all of this stuff. Even Harriet, her, her press secretary decides, I can't, I'm out, right? <laughs> this is what she said as she left. She's either crazy or truly wicked. <laughs> so that's oh. how bad that got. Okay. But they said she can't be left alone. First of all, we're not even sure who she is. Secondly, she, obviously she's off the rails, so she was sent to a sanatorium in Bavaria now at this point and just gets worse and worse. She was assessed uh, at these places. They said that she was not mentally ill, but merely high strung. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. She has the vapors. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the prince who'd been paying for all of this, Prince of Denmark, his family is like, that is enough. We're not, don't, you, you're not allowed to give her any more money. Let go. And he basically cuts off funds. That's the end of that. Gilliard, the guy that was the tutor who said, this, this is bullshit, she's not Anastasia, <laughs> has gotten sick of her living off of this family who he served and he loved. And he's thinking she's, she's treating them like chumps. So he starts trying to get her locked up or expelled out of the country or whatever. He tries to get her expelled from Bavaria as a criminal imposter. I guess, you know, that's illegal. As that's going on, her supporters now go to another distant relation of the Romanovs, Duke George of Luchtenberg. So he's like, oh, okay, I guess I'll take care of her now. <laughs> oh, God. He allows her to stay at Schloss Sion, his country estate. This place is beautiful. I saw pictures of it. It's just cool. It was just gorgeous. Again, she gets there. She mostly stays alone. She doesn't interact with the family. She mostly well, she does there. better that way. She does <laughs> much better that way. But all of a sudden, in Sion, her, remember she, she spoke very good German. All of a sudden, her German's not so good. It starts getting worse. So again, they're like, okay, maybe it's the trauma. I don't know. She's sick. What's going on? Right. Weird, right? Other people came invited by this Duke to come see her. One of them, and this one blew my mind, was Felix Yusupov, which was the guy that murdered Rasputin. Remember? Mm -hmm. I guess right before he was going to get there, they told her, Captain Yusupov is coming, an old friend of yours. What do you think her reaction would have been to know that this guy who killed the guy that she, they saw as like this holy man, their yeah. good friend. Go screaming into the night. Exactly. <laughs> no, she's excited. Oh my God, my old friend. Wrong. <laughs> okay. but, then, but then I guess she Don't thought about to drink from him. She either thought about it or went back to her books or her magazines or whatever. And she finally... She changed all of a sudden. She was terrified that he's coming before, you know, before he got there. Right. And then later she claimed that he had tried to kill her when they were alone, when he had visited and she had run out of the room. Okay. okay. And she just got away. Just got away. <laughs> <laughs> 
one of the last people that we talk about really quickly, because he's here till the end of her life, Gleb Botkin. He was the son of Dr. Botkin. Dr. Botkin was the doctor that was the family physician, the royal mm-hmm. physician. He was actually executed with the family. So this is his son. He came and his sister both came to see her. We're kind of not sure at first, but then became very big supporters and said they knew for, for 100% that she was Anastasia. Okay. Uh, <laughs> But the country was split on whether she was her or not. Some people were saying, you guys are just trying to cheat her out of her inheritance. Other people were saying, she's an imposter. She's a criminal. She should be arrested. So Botkin said, you know what? I think it's time for you to leave Europe. And you're not safe here. Botkin had actually contacted one of Anastasia's second cousins, Princess Xenia, who is now living in New Jersey because she married an American and moved to New Jersey. And she agreed to allow her to come to, to stay with her in the U.S., so she goes to America in 1928. We needed her here. <laughs> she travels with Zini. Oh, yeah, it gets real bad. So she gets here in February of 1928. But the princess is actually not even in the country at the time. So some socialite comes and says, oh, I'll pick her up. She can stay with me until you get back or whatever. So when she gets there, this, she's just... Hobnobbing with the social set. The woman's buying her clothes on Fifth Avenue. She's going to parties. I mean, she's the toast of the town, right? Okay. Did she ever get any teeth? <laughs> I think, yeah, I'm, I think she did. I think she did. I don't know. Probably when Waldemar or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> probably, he probably bought her the teeth. So I was going to say, I'm like, because she was yeah, hiding she, her face. When she was staying at, the, at that Momsen clinic, that was a really like, it was a it was a really kind of upscale private clinic, so I'm pretty sure they fixed her up there. Yeah, Man, she's gone a long way from hiding her face with the sheet. So then, when this Romanov relative gets back a few weeks later, she's living in a big, huge, you know, those gigantic estates they had in, on Long Island at the time. You know, with the like the like the Great Gatsby, yeah. <laughs> like oh, yeah. that, right? With the green light, light. Yeah. So. Whatever she's calling herself now, she moves in uh, to Oyster Bay, Long Island with this relative. She also became convinced that she was Anastasia. She said, she didn't look like Anastasia, but my intuitive impression of the family resemblance let me know that it was her. What does that mean? It makes nothing. So, but by August, she'd had her, she got tired of her too, kicked her out. But now she's in America, so she changed her name, thank God, because now we know what to call her. She names she goes by Anna Anderson. She goes back to that woman who first housed her when she came. Her name was Annie Burr Jennings. Well, this woman just basically opened up her home to her, gave her credit cards to shop at all of the stores. And, she, you know, she was, like I said, now she's back on the social social life, right? She's driven around in her, chauff- by her, in her chauffeured limousine, by her driver, you know, all of this stuff again. Now you think this would be the end of it. Great. You got it. You're set for life. This lady likes it because I have Russian nobility in my home and I could take her to all the parties. So that was her whole thing. Anna now is, she's having a great life. That should be the end of it. She cannot maintain it. Cannot maintain it. (laughs) Summer of 1930, she starts believing everybody's spying on her. She's going all crazy again. Gets very paranoid. All this. Summer of 1930, she has a complete emotional breakdown. She starts screaming at Jennings. And takes off. She goes to back to the stores because she's going to go shop. You know, what do you call that? She's going to uh, do retail therapy. 
she had just called, you know, Jennings every name in the book and, you know, told her to F off and everything else. So she cut her off. So she gets to the store, declined. She can't buy anything. So now she freaks out. She returns back to Jennings' house. She throws a complete fit. She tries to attack the servants. (laughs) She ends up being chased naked. Why and how she got naked, I have no idea. Well, that's what you do when you get in a fight. (laughs) She's chased naked onto the roof of this penthouse (laughs) and then dragged back into the apartment by the servants screaming so she doesn't jump off the roof. Well, that's the end of that. So Jennings paid doctors to come who were willing to declare that she was delusional and had to be immediately committed, which is what happened. So she was sent to a, quote, rest home in Westchester County, New York, and basically stayed there for more than a year. When she got out in 1931, she goes back to Europe. She's admitted to a psychiatric institute in Hanover, Germany. That's paid for by the Jennings. I guess she's like, hey, I'll pay for her to live over there, right? (laughs) She voluntarily stays at this psychiatric institute for two, um, like, no, a year, over a year. She's shuffling around again. She's with the Von Klee. She's back with Harriet. She's taking out handouts, you know. Finally, one of her supporters gives, in 1949, this is going on for 15 Holy you know, moly. Yeah. She's given a small cottage to live in, purchased by one of these supporters. She lived alone. She had four wolfhounds to keep her company. Those dogs are huge, aren't they? They are. They're ginormous, Right. But she's still very not normal. So her house becomes, I would say, she becomes like a hoarder. She's got the dogs. She starts getting a bunch of cats. Oh, God. Um, Crazy cat lady. She's sleeping on the couch. The dogs are sleeping on the bed. All the walls are full of photos of the royal family, of course. There's clutter everywhere. The magazines, newspapers, junk. It becomes a health hazard. So the people that gave her the house move her out and into another house nearby. And this is the 1960s. So this goes on for like 10 years. But she starts all over again, hoarding. The house becomes uninhabitable as well. She's still being sought out by reporters and curious people, but she won't talk to anybody. But in 1954, a play comes out about her, her story of her life. And it's called Anastasia. It later opens in London, um, starring Sir Lawrence Olivier on the, on the stage. Then it comes to Broadway. Then it becomes a film called Anastasia, which I haven't seen. I need to watch this. It's uh, starring Helen Hayes as the Dowager Empress as her grandmother. And Ingrid Bergman plays Anastasia. And this was made in 1956. Bergman actually got her second um, Best Actress Oscar for playing Anastasia. I have never seen this movie. I don't know how. I haven't seen it. Because, you know, now this renewed interest because of the movie and all of this stuff, Life Magazine seeks her out. And she gives him an interview. It's like one of the first interviews she gives since who knows when. But there's photographs in that Life magazine of her in that house. It's just crowded with junk. You know, it's just, yeah, it's sad. So late 1960s move forward, you know, she's living in this terrible, in this house is in terrible condition. There's more than 60 cats. Oh, God, that's nasty. There's garbage everywhere. I can smell smell that house from here. (laughs) And, oh, my God, some of them, you know, when her cats and her dogs die, she buries them in the backyard, but not deep. And so it stinks, and the whole block smells like dead animals. So the neighbors are complaining. This Her benefactor that does is Prince Frederick of Barbaria. Animals. <laughs> so he contacts her, and he tells her that the house has to be cleaned up and put in order. She's going to have to, he's going to have to take her somewhere else. And he's still being very nice to her. 
Um, he's like, we've got to get you out of there so we can clean it up. You get it back in order, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, she locks the doors, won't let anybody in, won't talk to anybody. You know, they keep coming out and trying to, you know, get her to open the door. She won't. Four days later, they finally break in. She's unconscious because she's dehydrated on the floor. She went to the hospital. She was there for seven weeks. Meanwhile, they're cleaning up the whole house. I think one of the houses they just had demolished. The other house, they had to take all the cats away. They had to dig up all the rotting carcasses. They had to clean out the whole thing. It was just, Ugh. it was horrible. Now, so because all of this happened and she's like the crazy cat lady and she ends up, you know, being, you know, sent away again. Her friend Gleb Botkin, he finds out, of course, because he hasn't been in touch with her. He, he really does care about her. He always cared about her. He's now living in the U.S. He's living in Charlottesville, West Virginia. So that's near Washington, D.C. And he asked her, oh, look, come to the U.S. We'll get you situated here. But he's old now and he doesn't have much money. There's a guy in town. He was a former professor, very smart man. He loved history. He loved genealogy. He also had a lot of money. His family owned a lot of land there. He had a big house. He had a lot of money. His name's Jack Manahan. And he says, look, Jack, you know, tells her about her story. Because remember, Botkin believes she's Anastasia and gives him all the information and stuff. And he goes, she needs somewhere to go. She's getting older. She can't take care of herself. Would you be her benefactor? Because he loves history and genealogy. He's very intrigued by the story. Like I said, he's wealthy. He's also kind of eccentric. And he finds <laughs> out that she has nowhere to go and he, he agrees. So she comes in July of 1968. Very first plane ride she's ever been on. She goes to Washington, D.C. She loves the D.C. area. Guess who visits her at Manahan's house? Oh, God, I'm afraid. Maria Rasputin, Gregory Rasputin's daughter, comes oh, to see okay. her. Now, that's the one that, remember, they didn't invite them to the funeral? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they let her come to the house after and we'll, you know, give you tea or something. I don't know what happened. But um, because she'd heard the whole story, she believed that she was Anastasia because she said, well, she knew all these details about the history. She knew about but details about the history with her father. So when she comes, you know, she's a supporter. She's like, oh, yeah, it's her. But then Maria tells her, okay, now I need you to go with me to Los Angeles because we're going to be making a documentary film about my father and you need to be interviewed for that. And so you can come with me. And, and she's like, oh, hell no, I'm not doing that. So now Maria gets pissed and she says, you know what? You're not Anastasia. Okay, last part of the crazy story. That December, Anna marries Jack. He's 20 years younger than her, but... He offers her financial security and her visa is about to expire. Okay, well, why not? Yeah. And, you know, she finally has a legal name, Anastasia <laughs> Manahan. But she only wants to be called Mrs. Manahan. He moves her into his estate. They actually seem to have a very nice relationship and they seem to be doing really well. But she starts collecting dogs and cats again. He starts collecting everything and he's got money so he can go buy stuff from all over oh, the world no. about anything about Anna. Stasia and the Romanovs, anything about the, the story about her from the time that she was found in Berlin. He collects all of this stuff. That all comes into the house. More hoarding is going on here. Both of them now. Okay. So at first they speak English to each other because her English, I guess it's not very good, but she can speak it. But then they start speaking English slash German and finally just German. She calls him, his name is John. She calls him Hans, which I think is funny because it's our sets. German for John. They live as a normal older couple. He has a country club nearby that they dine at all the time, but she, they go to the country club to have dinner several times a week. 
she's got a very short temper with with him and he seems to be a person like he'll argue sometimes but he seems like he kind of puts up with whatever but she gets angry with him in public she starts screaming and yelling at him loudly in german now if you heard anybody scream in german <laughs> it, it can be a little yeah loud a little scary yeah and loud finally the country club says don't renew your membership please mr <laughs> manahan so they stop going there they're home all the time the house becomes dirty. He's not mowing the lawn anymore. He's not having anybody come. She doesn't want anybody at the house. By 1974, that house is just terrible. It's another hoarder house. He's even fined over $1,700 in order to clean it up by a judge because it's so bad. So 1979, he becomes, no, she becomes ill. Now, this is going to be important. She becomes ill. She's rushed to Martha Jefferson Hospital she has a tumor in her ovaries and it, it becomes a bowel obstruction. So she has to undergo a surgery where a bowel tissue is removed. She recovered from that, but now she's really frail. She's in a wheelchair. In 1983, I mean, she's lived a long life, this woman. They yeah, both fall ill. House is even worse now. Her husband's not well now. A judge actually steps in and has uh, appoints an attorney to be Anna's guardian because her husband's not doing it and they're both sick. The attorney then commits her to a psychiatric ward because she's just getting worse. The next day, here comes Hans, her husband. He breaks her out of the hospital. He kidnaps her. This was a big story back then. (laughs) (laughs) They go on the lamb like friggin' Bonnie and Clyde. They're missing for four days. They're finally found living in their old station wagon off of a country road. She's dehydrated again and very confused. Now, at the time, she was tiny. Like they said, she never hardly ate. She picked up food. She probably weighed like 85 pounds. She was tiny. So anyway, she returned to the hospital. Once she recovered, her appointed attorney has her admitted to a private nursing home. I think they said when she she was taken to the hospital, she was weighing like 65 pounds. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, she was bad. Her husband comes and visits every day. He puts up all the pictures of the royal family all over her room because that's what she likes. And then she has a stroke. And two weeks later, on February 12th, 1984, she dies of pneumonia. On her death certificate is recorded. Her name is Anastasia Nikolovina Manahan. Says she was born June 5th, 18th, because I think those both of those dates were on the real Anastasia's records. I don't know what that means, but it was always says born 5th and then 18th. 1901 in uh, Peterhof, Russia. So that means she was about 83 when she died. Yeah, 83 when she died. And it also says on her death certificate, parents, Tsar Nicholas II and Alexandra of Hesse. And her occupation, it says royalty. <laughs> okay. She was cremated and eventually interred in, at that Sion place back in Bavaria. And then her husband, he dies in 1990. I promise to say what really happened to the Romanovs. Reason why we know, because in 1989, there was a memo found. Now, this was after the fall of communist Russia. So once it fell, all of this stuff started coming out. Well, one of the things that came out was something called the Yurovsky Note. And that Yurovsky was the guy that, with his soldiers, and executed them. And he had written a memo about exactly what happened. So this is where this comes from. It had been filed and given to Bolshevik superiors, and like I said, not found until 1989. The family had been awakened. They were told to dress. They were told they were being moved to a new location, like I said, because they said the White Army was approaching. They followed him to the sub-basement room. They were told to wait. 
Alexei actually was being carried by his father because he couldn't walk. He was very ill. This is the, you know, their son. So besides, you know, Nicholas and Alexandra, Alexei, their four daughters, was also Dr. Botkin and some other staff that there was four others. The guards entered, led by Yurovsky. That's when they were, the family was told that they were to be executed. Yurovsky made the statement, Nicholas Alexandrovich, your relatives are trying to save you. Therefore, we are compelled to shoot you. The czar only had time to say what and look at his family before he was shot. He was hit by several bullets to the chest. He was not, as later alleged, shot in the head. When his skull was later found, it proved this. The Tsarina actually had a chance to make a sign of the cross before she was hit by bullets. She was also shot in the head. The rest of the family followed. Alexei didn't die immediately. Yurovsky said he, he actually had to fire two or three more shots into the boy before he died. The Grand Duchesses were the last to die. They were standing against the back wall behind their parents. Their bullets, the first bullets that hit him, hit the protective layer of jewels sewed into their clothes. So they ricocheted off. So they fell back, but it didn't kill them. The shooters then moved closer. I mean, they do details in these, this memo. It's crazy. Shooters moved closer. The two oldest, Olga and Tatiana, were shot in the head. Anastasia and Marie were said to have crouched up against the wall, holding their arms over their faces and their bodies before being shot. I don't know if they were, they were out of bullets, or they had to reload or whatever, because they started stabbing them with the bayonets. But the blades of the bayonets were still being deflected off of these jewels. Oh, wow. They had a ton yeah. of jewels. They must have had a ton of jewels on them. Anastasia also, they said, did not, didn't die immediately. She was basically screaming, trying to get away. A uh, gunman approached. She tried to fight him off. Others began stabbing her with bayonets until she fell still. Another one of the guards had told his wife that Anastasia had been finished off with the bayonets as well. So that confirmed that. The last one um, to be attacked was Alexandra's maid, Anna Demidova. She was attacked with bayonets. I think they might have been out of bullets. I don't know. Or they just were reloading. She ran and was chased. She was holding a pillow when she went down and it was filled with jewels. So she had that in front of her. So that was why they couldn't, you know, didn't get her right away. But eventually they, you know, they stabbed her to death. The bodies were then carried out of the room to a truck waiting in the courtyard. But when they... I guess they put the bodies on the ground and started to put them in the truck. But Anastasia and Marie were still alive. They actually sat up and started coughing blood and moaning. And so they knew they're still alive. But the soldiers now couldn't shoot them because they were outside. So they didn't want to shoot them outside and call attention because it was still a town. There's still people, you know, not right there because it was a little bit of an estate, but not too far away. So they tried using the bayonets again, but it was, I guess it would be like in the places that would have been more quickly fatal. So in the end, especially Anastasia, I know, and probably Marie, um, they were hit in the face and the head with the butt end of the rifle. The report actually says that Anastasia, because of this, I mean, they just, bad. They just brutalized her. She was just drowned in her own blood. Is what happened. They had originally said that they had been taken to the Kopyaki Forest, which was nearby, um, and said they had been dismembered, their bodies dissolved in acid, but that wasn't true when this memo basically gave them the real story. This is the weird thing. First, the bodies were thrown down an abandoned mine shaft. And I think, I don't know if I said this in episode one or not, but later, some of their, the, the family's belongings were actually found down that mine shaft. 
jewels were found down that mine shaft. They did not search their possessions. There was, like I said, $14 million worth of jewels. Now, this is one question that, that some of the people that research this have is like, why didn't they remember when they were with the, the first set of soldiers or maybe even the second set of soldiers and they were very friendly with them and they were being nice to them and stuff. Why didn't they bribe them? Yeah. Here, we'll give you a million dollars worth of jewels or a million rubles or whatever it was at the time to help us escape. I think they must have thought that they were going to be rescued, that they weren't going to be killed. They had to have. Because yeah. don't you think somebody would have thought of that? Yeah. That's just, that's crazy. So those jewels were not found for, I don't know, I forget how long, but it was years um, before somebody found that mine shaft, found some like possessions and found some of the jewels there. Wow. It's crazy. So anyway, the first bodies were thrown down this mine shaft and then the bodies had been stripped. So maybe they found those jewels. I don't know. But two days later, the soldiers returned. I think somebody said, yeah, you... You can't just do that. They're going to be found. They returned. They tied the bodies with ropes and pulled them back up out of the mine shaft. They were driven then. This is why it was so hard to find the bodies and it took so long. They were driven then to another burial spot. They were going to go further out, but the truck broke down at a place called Pig's Meadow. So they dug a pit there. It was a mass grave. They tossed all but two of the bodies into the grave. The bodies of Anastasia and Alexei were not put in that grave which we'll find out later from the DNA stuff. The bodies were then taken 200 feet across the meadow. A bonfire was lit. Um, the bodies were doused with gasoline and thrown on the, on the bonfire and burned. Then two shallow pits were dug and the remains were buried there. The mass grave in the forest, remember this is a 1989 memo, the mass grave in the forest had been found a decade earlier, but only after the fall of communism could the story be revealed. The grave was finally exhumed in 1991. They found shattered bones, skulls with bullet holes. They, they knew there was 11 victims total, including the five Romanov family members and six servants, but only the remains of only nine bodies were found. And that's why, because they had moved them. 16 years passed. People were trying to find those other two bodies because they wanted to prove one or other. Did anybody it was escape? them or not? Yeah. Yeah. And the two... Most people wanted to know Anastasia because of that story that had been going on for so long. And, and Alexei, because he was a Zarevich, he was the heir. Yeah. So, you know, you want to know for sure whether he's alive or not. And you want to, you know, if you've, even if you're pretty sure he's dead, you need to know that for sure, right? So in August 2007, a group of historians and archaeologists from Ekaterinburg discovered the two pits at the end of Pig's Meadow. It was only 200 feet from a cross marking the mass grave of the other family members. There was 48 pieces of bone found, all showed signs of having been burnt. Um, They also showed signs of gunshot wounds. And they said that the bones had probably been hacked by axes into pieces too. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not really sure why they decided to do that with those two. There's all kinds of theories about that. And one of them that I heard, if somebody found that grave at some point, that, that mass grave, and it was the exact right number of people, they would know that those were the Romanovs and they didn't want them to find them. Maybe they thought they would be more, it would be more identifiable because everybody else was basically adults. So one of those things, everybody always debates, like, why, why did that happen? Anyway, they were able to, you know, forensic science, find out that those remains belonged to two people, one male, one female. Uh, the male was between the ages of the 12 and between the ages of 12 and 15. Alexei was 14. 
the girl was between 15 and 19 and Anastasia was 18. So that totally confirmed it. But then they did the DNA testing finally and confirmed that they were the children of Nicholas and Alexandra. And as far as the DNA testing on the rest of them, DNA was extracted from the femurs found at the grave site for Nicholas and Alexandra. Oh, because a blood sample was donated by uh, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, because he was a direct blood relative of the Empress's mother, Princess Alice, and her grandmother, Queen Victoria. So, so they shared the same mitochondrial DNA with Alexandra and the daughters. So they were able to, to say definitively that it was from, you know, the Empress's family. When was that? When that was it- in uh, t- 2007, I think. Oh my gosh. I think that was 2007. Wow. Yeah. Nicholas II's remains, uh, remains were compared with the Vero, but he had a bunch of relatives. So they were able to say that that was him. They needed to find out now because they have DNA. What about Anna Anderson? Yeah. So they did this hunt. Finally, somebody was able to track down when she had that operation in 1979. They had, they had actually taken pathology samples of the intestine that was removed. Mm-hmm. And they actually still had it. I don't know why they do that. So he had collected that sample. This doctor that was trying to do the DNA match. This was in 1994. He collected the tissue sample. So that was one of the pieces of DNA. She had been cremated, probably because oh, she right. thought about, hmm, I don't want anybody to dig me up. Here's the other thing. They got a hair sample from her. And this is why. This woman named Susan Grindstaff Burkhart. She was just lived there in Charlottesville. After Anna Anderson's husband died, his library was um, basically purchased or donated or something to the local bookstore. So they had a bunch of his books, right? So this woman had been interested in the Anna Anderson story since she was 12. This is another true crime head, right? This is another couch detective, you know? She'd been so interested in it. So when she found out that some of his books were there, um, at the bookstore, they just basically had them like in a basement, they had boxes of stuff in a basement room. She asked, you know, I want to go through, I might want to buy some of these. And they said, sure. So she went through. She found several of his books with envelopes marked on the outside that said Anna's hair. Ew. With pieces of her. He kept everything. Ew, gross. <laughs> he was a hoarder. Yeah, even, <laughs> even clumps of hair inside that said Anna's hair. He kept everything. She purchased his books for $20 that had the envelopes with the hair in it, 20 bucks. And she tracked down these people and said, hey, you want to check this out? And they're like, hell yeah. So the, D- the DNA samples from her pathology and from her hair were uh, tested by three separate labs. And the profile was compared to the remains of Nicholas and Alexandra. And no match. Denied. She was not related. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. So who was she? Anybody want to know? Tell you real quick. Yeah. Did they know? (laughs) Well, here's the weird thing. There had been rumors since the 1920s that that this person saying she was Alexandra was a missing woman named Franziska Szenskowska, who was a Polish factory worker. She had gone missing in Berlin at the beginning of 1920. They knew that this woman had worked in a munitions factory during World War I. But most people just rejected this because they said... Some Polish peasant who's uneducated could not have impersonated a you know, royalty so well, and she spoke all these, whatever, all this stuff. So they basically just rejected it, and it just kind of went by the wayside. But some people always believe that that was probably true. So when later on, when this came out, and we know that that's not her, people started writing books and things, and they started you know, really going back and, and 
figuring out who is this person, right? So they found out she was Franziska Shanskowska. We'll call her Fran, okay? <laughs> we'll call her Fran. <laughs> so she was born in 19, 1896 near uh, the border of West Prussia and Pomer- Pomerania. Now, did you know Pomerania was a country? No, I knew it was a dog. Exactly. I'm like, that must be where the Pomeranians come from. Who knew? I had no idea. Well, today it's Poland, but then it wasn't Poland. And this is, this is part is, is important. It's, it's a weird detail because this region of this area that was kind of like rural, whatever, was inhabited by people called the Kashubians. They were descendants of Baltic Slavs. They spoke their own language, which was Kashubian. Now, the Kashubian language was influenced by a bunch of different languages. German, Swedish, and Polish words and phrases came in to, to be part of this language. Her family had actually had ties to the Polish, no, to Polish nobility way back in the 15th century. And it was weird because earlier she had said something about Polish nobility. She had said that the soldier who had rescued her, he had told her that he um, descended from Polish nobility. That's where that part of the story came from, because her family actually descended from Polish nobility, but it was way, way back. By this time, they were already, 1800s, they were farmers. So her father, Anton, he was really a lot older than her mother. She had four siblings, like Anastasia did. She was the oldest, not the youngest, though. They all, you know, eked out a living on this farmland. But in 1906, her father inherited 30 acres in the village, but he sold them, and he purchased another farm in Pomerania, this town called Heigendorf. That's where she grows up. So... But here, people think Polish peasants, oh, you know, they're dirt farmers or whatever. They weren't. They didn't have money or anything, but they all went to school. They were all educated. It wasn't like people thought just Polish peasants or whatever. So they all went to school. She was really, really smart. She actually completed her ninth grade studies in less than six months. She was smarter than anybody in the family, and she acted like she knew it. She was kind of like always acted superior. They didn't like her too much. I mean, they didn't. She just was one of those. Like she thought she was all that, right? But she grew up speaking several languages, including Kashubian. Her second language is Polish. And her third was German, which was high German. And I only know about high German and low German. And I guess what they used to call it. I'm not sure they call that anymore. Because I had a friend who actually was, family was from Switzerland, but they speak German. She explained to me that, High German, it was like, you're educated. You speak a better form better of, of German, right? She spoke high, high German very well. But remember, when she discovered that Anastasia was not fluent in German, she started speaking more rough German. It, it became worse. Again, something to cover her tracks. She always hated working on the farm. And she was her father's favorite. She was allowed to skip chores. She was allowed to skip work. She was always reading all the time. Her siblings resented her because she got out of work and she, they also thought she was really odd. But her father also didn't like to work. He was the town drunk, okay? He was actually known in the town as the Dorf, Dorf Trinker, which means the village drinker. Yeah. I'm like, that's a good name, Dorf Trinker. <laughs> he damn Dorf Trinker. <laughs> well, that's who he was. Mariana, his wife, hated her husband. She hated him. She would scream and shriek. And that, I think this is where Anna got it. Because yeah. whenever she'd get angry, she'd just start screaming and shrieking and everything. She was so loud and she was just so with her husband that the village children became afraid of her and called her the witch. <laughs> just hilarious. Oh but anyway, so she was treated more, much more special than the other children. Her mother also resented her. 
But there was also rumors that there was incest going on between her and her father. Yeah. Um, which they said there was some evidence for it, possibly because her personality, everybody said, changed a lot as she reached her, like her preteens. She no longer socialized with her former friends. She isolated herself. She didn't attend anything like dances or things with or go on dates. She never dated anybody. But then she said, they said she started behaving pretentiously as if she was better than everybody else. And so people just kind of like, you know, whatever. We don't want to be around her anyway. She wanted nothing to do with her family. At this time, she starts talking about wanting to be in better circles or like in better circumstances around better people. Mm-hmm. So when she was just 15 in 1912, her father died from tuberculosis, which she would also be sick with later on. A year later, her mother remarried and she decides she's going to send Fran away. She's 17 years old. Her mother sends her to Berlin. She has no family or friends in the city. She gets there in 1914. She works as a maid. She works as a waitress. She worked for a wealthy family, which is where they think she learned some of the better manners. The First World War begins. And when that happens, for some reason, Fran's mother sends her 16-year-old sister Gertrude to live with her. (laughs) Like, thanks. They share a room in an apartment building. This is where she starts working for the AEG, which is a a company. It's a factory in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And it was a good gig because she was able to make more money. She got more ration coupons. This is during the war. So now they're bringing women in to work in the factories. The men are at war, so they need workers. Now, this factory manufactured military equipment, field telephones, plane motors. And what was Fran's job? She worked on an assembly line polishing grenades. Oh, my God. My question is, how shiny do your grenades have to be? (laughs) (laughs) Why would you you need to do this? That's what I'm saying. Like, oh, my God. So, okay. So, she's working there. In 1916, she meets a German soldier, and they become engaged. But he's sent to the Eastern Front that summer, and then he dies. It's believed that Fran may have been pregnant at this time. And this is possibly why she added the story about being raped and giving birth. Yeah. Um. Because if she was examined, it probably would reveal that she had had a pregnancy. But yes, in 1951, a gynecological exam while she was in one of these hospitals did reveal that there was evidence of a pregnancy. But her family said that she had never been pregnant or given birth, which I don't know how they'd know because I don't think they were around her that much. Yeah. But here's the weird thing. Around the time that her fiancé went off to war and then he died soon after, she and her sister had a big falling out. Fran actually moved out of the apartment. And moved into the building manager's apartment. This lady was named Anna Wingender. She was like one of the first ones who's going to take her in and take care of her. This starts kind of that pattern. She said she felt sorry for her. She feeds and she houses her. But this is why they think that she might have been pregnant. Because she becomes ill at the time um, of blood poisoning. And what that suggests, they said, the people that researched this, is that it's possible that she had been pregnant and gotten an abortion, which you... It wasn't legal at the time, but it was common, especially yeah. people who, you know, maybe were married or were maybe weren't married, but their their the father had gone off to war and gotten killed or not coming back to them. And, you know, it, they were barely people were barely staying alive. They were starving, you know, it's like so that was something that was happening, but that was one of the dangers of it is getting blood poisoning. So I think that maybe that might have happened at that time. They said, why did she get in a fight with her sister? Neither one of them would ever talk about it. She lived two floors above her sister and they never saw each other. And she would have also lost her job because a pregnant woman cannot work. Oh, that's know, right. So she would have had nothing. So anyway, she returned back to work in 1916, but she was not completely recovered from this illness. While she was on the assembly line, this is so crazy. She faints and she falls to the floor. 
a grenade that she was working on rolls out of her hand, rolls away, lands near the line foreman and explodes. And he's just blown to bits right in front of everybody. So here's the story though. People said, oh, this is where she got the scars. Mm -hmm. But no, because the family says, no, she was actually saved because she fell on the floor. She only had some superficial cuts. She didn't have any major injury. She didn't have any deep cuts. There was no scarring. That's the story though. Whenever you'll see it's like, oh, she got blown up in this factory and that's where she got the scars, but it's not true. So, well, after all this crap that happened, she, you know, fiance gets killed in the war and, you know, she gets sick and her, her boss blows up in front of her and all this. <laughs> what a nightmare. It sounds it's like a nightmare. This right is where she, she finally, you know, and I would say, I would think, yeah, this totally makes sense. She has her first breakdown and she's hospitalized, committed to an asylum in 1916. Um, but here's the thing. This was actually like good luck for her because this is right in the middle of the worst time of the war where yeah. people are starving. Their the rations are being cut, all of this stuff. Now she's in a hospital. She's somewhere to sleep. She has food. She doesn't have to work. You know, she's being taken care of. And I think that set up some of this later stuff where she's, you yeah. know, I'll stay in the hospital. It's fine. You know, and this is the last part of the crazy shit that happens to her. In 1918, she takes a job as a laborer at another estate. Now, she, it's the only work she can get, apparently, because she hated that kind of work. Yeah. But she works in the asparagus fields alongside, get this, Russian prisoners who'd been taken prisoner along the Eastern Front, and they were forced to work as laborers. She's working with all these Russians, so that's where she picked up some Russian. And probably the story about the princess. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that they might have had you know stories about that, but... So she's there working with them for five months. This is the weird thing is I don't, there's no information about why this happened, but in, at that job, that autumn, she gets attacked by one of the Russian soldiers. Now she just could have been mouthing off. I don't know what happened. Nobody yeah. says, nobody knows. Um, she was attacked by one of the Russian soldiers and he attacks her with some kind of farming tool, whether it's a pitchfork or a shovel, I don't know. But this is where she probably get those injuries. This is where she probably accounts for the fractured jaw, the loose teeth, the scars. The scars from the pierced foot could have been from a pitchfork. Yeah. That foot. But she never told her family about this attack. They knew nothing about it. But it was on the record because she had worked for, I think it was a state, like belonged to the government or something. So there was a record of it. She goes back to her friend, Anna Wingender's apartment. This is where she gets self-caught. She's got the broken teeth. She starts covering her face when she talks. They said she never had any friends over. The only one she talked to was Anna and her daughters. She was very depressed a lot of times. All she did was read. It was all the stuff you saw later on in the in the hospital. She also talks to the daughters about wishing to be someone grand, someone important. She was still staying with the Wingenders, went back to work at the farm that she was attacked at. But in February 1920, she leaves the apartment. And that's the night that she jumps into the canal. Why didn't, was she not discovered as being Fran? Why didn't any of these people that knew who she was ever come forward and say? Her sister, her mother, probably because none of them wanted her back. (laughs) Maybe, but so the the woman who was her friend, she didn't report her missing for over three weeks, first of all. Police really didn't do much of a search on her. They probably thought, okay, she's either in a hospital somewhere or she's killed herself. I mean, I think that's maybe what they just chalked it up to. Well, it could also be just just like it is nowadays. I mean, it's like, well, there's there's nothing illegal about just leaving. Right. Yeah, she's an adult. Yeah. 
Yeah, she could have totally done that. So just final things. It's like when I was reading this, I thought she wasn't trying to impersonate anyone. You know, she just simply remained silent at the hospital. And so people <laughs> believe whatever they wanted to, right? She's like, okay, well, that works. So yeah, uh, they're bringing me treats and, and I don't have to say anything. And they bring me stuff, let me live places. And yeah, but even that first, that, even at that first hospital, I think, you know, is the first time she had been given all this attention. Yeah. You know, given all this attention. But then, like you said, they, she was in with the rich family, they, Von Cleese, they give her everything. When she kind of had to break down and then she left their home. But when she came back, that after that four days when she was, they found her wandering in the zoo. Yeah. Or it seems like from the research is that she really leaned into that story about being Anastasia at that point. Yeah. Frankly. What else is she going to do? Yeah, exactly. Where's she going to go? I mean, if they just say, oh, you're not her and they kick her out to, on the street, she's back where she started. Yeah. You know, now she became a student of yeah. Anastasia. Because when these people start coming, because they like the story and they want to be part of it, they started telling her stories. They started bringing her photos, things that she was studying. Here's some of the things. There was books and there was pamphlets and there was articles that were written. They were out then and published, written by Romanov friends, some of their former servants who had survived. Oh, the Diary of Nicholas II was published at that sometime around that time. You can get your hands on that. Also, there was letters between Nicholas and Alexander that they written to each other during the war that were published. So there's got to be like yeah. details in there. I mean, nicknames they called each other or you know, all kinds of stuff. Like, what are the yeah. girls doing? Yeah. Oh, the so-and-so has a little cat. She named it blah, blah, blah. You know, anything yeah. like that. And she seemed to remember everything, like I said. And whenever she couldn't answer something... We know what she do. She just blamed her injuries or trauma or illness. Or cover her face. Or cover. <laughs> <laughs> but even when she was staying with people, you know, she always isolated herself. She didn't spend a lot of time around them because, you know, they might ask her things that she couldn't answer. Yeah. You know, all of that was going on. Less well, obviously, she had anger and management problems oh, as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it worked, it worked out both ways, I think. Yeah. Because on the one hand, it was less chance of being exposed on the other hand it was less chance of her freaking out and getting you know thrown out again but in total there were 15 people who knew the Romanovs intimately who you know either worked for them were close family members that had all rejected her claim others who believed her were mostly less well acquainted with her or had known her further in the past long before the executions so maybe you know kids change as they grow yeah so the last thing I was just going to give a quote, because one of the things I got a lot of information was this book. It's called Resurrection of the Romanovs. It's by Greg King and Penny Wilson. And I'll put a link in the show notes, but to, to, if you want to, people want to find it, because there's a lot more information in there. But oh my God. <laughs> oh, and, so anyway, here's his kind of summary of why this story continued so long and why people kept it going, even though so many people said, no, it's definitely not her. Quote, there were among many devastated and dispossessed emigres, desperation for the old order that made them particularly susceptible to the idea of a miraculously rescued member of the imperial family. I'm saying this. They believed or they wanted to, the imposter's claims, because he says this, quote, scarred by the loss of their country, their titles, and their fortunes, many were susceptible to any echo from their vanished past. Her, which he's talking about Fran, Fran her claim played upon these dreams where intriguing possibility joined force with a deeper need 
a psychological desire to make sense of overwhelming loss, which is kind of what I was thinking about as I was going through it. It's like, yes, people, it sounds like people want to believe it. Oh, yeah. For the things that 100% don't fit, they're making excuses. And they're saying, well, maybe this is why, or this is why, or I can do that, that today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> In any other situation. Yeah. It's what's it called um, confirmation bias. You know, yeah. like you, you want to believe it. So you have this bias towards whatever fits your narrative or your belief or what you want to believe and rejects anything that doesn't, you yeah. know, and that's just, you know, we do that all even the time. If you, even if you provide all of the evidence right there in front of them, they're, they'll continue to say why that's not true. Exactly. Yeah. You can't convince some people who don't want to be convinced. And there are some people that that was all they had. I mean, these are people that lost everything. You know, they lost their country. You know, they lost their home. Yeah. They lost a lot of their family members were killed. Now they're immigrants and, and they want to believe this, like somebody survived and maybe we'll come back, you know, we'll be victorious or, you know, who knows what they, what they wanted. But it was for a time, it was something that they really wanted just to hold on to, especially when she first came out. So, and here, of course, people are like, they just thought of it as a Hollywood story. So they want to, oh, yeah. we, we have our real priorities here. We, we oh, like yeah. the fake well, stuff. No. <laughs> we like the fake stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's give true. Us give us a movie any day over real stuff. Politics, schmolitics. Let us go watch a movie. You know? <laughs> That's kind Anything of it, man. away from real life. Yeah. So that is Anastasia. Anna Anderson, not Anastasia. So yeah, that was that was crazy. That's a yeah. story. <laughs> so anyway, so that is that. That'll do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'd like to thank Yolanda for helping me share this fascinating story with you. I'll be back next week with a whole new series, Where Did the Summer Go? Join us for our new series for September, Bad Teacher. I'll be sharing cases of educators behaving badly. You won't want to miss it, so make sure you're subscribed to Once Upon a Crime wherever you listen to podcasts. Also in September, we'll be adding new tiers, new perks, and brand new merchandise to our Patreon. To get all the info and join, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Thank you so much. Don't forget to go to our Instagram page for your chance to win a free digital download of the new Paramount feature film, The Vanished. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative and research assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music for the show is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another.